Our sermon text for today is from Mark 1, chapters, verses 35 through 45. Seven sermons later, we are getting out of chapter 1. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next town, that I may preach there also, for, the, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your, for, for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Discipline is the key to devotion, and only those who are fully devoted to God will see God. Theologian Don Whitney says in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, in my own pastoral and personal Christian experience, I can say that I've never known a man or woman who came to spiritual maturity except through discipline. Godliness comes through discipline. We all want to be devoted to God, don't we? This is why we're here this morning. We all want to delight in the Lord but our discipline is often lacking. How many times have we started a Bible reading plan and stopped short of the goal? Or tried to pray just to see how easily our minds wander to other things? Or attempted to be disciplined in our church attendance, giving, service, evangelism, and failed over and over again? I mean... Some of us do better than others. But if everyone could observe a day in our lives, from the moment we rise to the moment we go to bed, how disciplined would we be? If we could watch a video of our actions, of our thoughts, of our every intention, the intention of our hearts, we all know we wouldn't fare too well. Our depravity often affects our discipline, and our poor discipline keeps us from proper devotion to God. 
But this is not true of Jesus. Jesus succeeds in every way we fail, vesting us who come to him by faith in himself. And training us to have a truly disciplined life. The reason why we often fail in our spiritual disciplines is because the only discipline that matters and the only discipline that lasts for eternal life is the discipline that is lived vicariously through Christ. Jesus accomplished it all for us, even the discipline that leads us to devotion. Today we're going to look at Jesus as we seek to trust in him. We're going to learn and gain from his life. And we're going to gain from him a life that is marked by devotion and discipline. So look at verse 35. We're going to see here Jesus' devotion towards the Father. We, we just finished seeing a day in Jesus' life. In the morning, he preached in the synagogues. Afterward, he goes to Peter's house and he heals his mother-in-law. And as night dawns, Mark tells us the whole city gathered together at Peter's door so that Jesus could continue healing and casting out their demons. Now, certainly, Jesus had earned the right to rest, right? He worked hard. He deserves it. And that's right. Interestingly enough, in verse 35, we find Jesus resting. But for Jesus to rest is not to slumber, but to submerge himself in the presence of the Father. Have you ever had a day of rest? And as you rested, you realized you accomplished no rest. Friends, we can learn from Jesus that true, true rest is not found in lazy practices, but it's found on leaning on the Father. Mark tells us that in the morning, while it was still dark, literally, Mark says, while it was still evening. This is very early. Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. The word here is the same word for wilderness. We've seen this word in this, chapters a few, in this chapter a few times. John preached and baptized in the wilderness. There, Jesus met John. Jesus was tempted and ministered by the angels in the wilderness. And now, he's back. But why is the wilderness so attractive to Jesus? Why does Jesus desire the wilderness so much that he would wake up when it's still evening 
and pursue solitude in the wilderness. In Mark, the wilderness is a place where spiritual wars are waged. The wilderness is a place where the devout find victory in God. Jesus loved the wilderness because it was in the wilderness that he was able to spend time with the Father. Time that was uninterrupted, undistracted. In the wilderness, Jesus prayed. Now, this raises an interesting question. Isn't Jesus God? Why did Jesus need to pray? Jesus needed to pray because Jesus is God, but Jesus was also a man. And as a man, he depended on the power that prayer supplies. A prayerless life is a powerless life. Even for the man, Christ Jesus. This, Jesus didn't just pretend that he lived, Jesus didn't just pretend he lived as a man. He really lived as a man. And as a man, he needed the same supply we need. Clearly, he had no sin, but the same brokenness, the same weakness we so often experience. He experienced too. And where does Jesus take his brokenness, humility, and weakness? He takes it to the Father. Jesus' greatest need was communion with the Father. Friends, are you finding yourself hopeless and helpless in your weakness and in your distress? Look to Jesus. Who in his weakness sought strength through the Spirit in the Father. There is an immediate application here, right? If Jesus, being God and being man, depended on prayer, we too should depend on prayer. If Jesus, being God, needed fellowship with the Father through prayer, how much more do we need fellowship with the Father through prayer? Reformer Martin Luther would say, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so is the business of Christians to pray. A prayerless Christian is a contradiction in itself. Prayer will fuel your spiritual life. Do you desire to be more useful to the Lord? Do you ever think that? How can I be more useful to the Lord? Do you desire to evangelize more? I think we all feel weak in evangelism, don't we? Do you desire to find victory over sin? Do you desire to become a better spouse? A better parent? A better child? Do you desire to be better with your vocation and work and studies? Do you desire to become wiser? With your finances? Do you desire to love others more? Do you desire to love God more? Do you desire to pray 
more. Begin with prayer. That's where our spirituality begins. That's where we find power. Prayer imparts wisdom. Prayer imparts boldness. Prayer imparts confidence. Why? Because through prayer, God works in us supernaturally. Prayer works supernaturally in our hearts as the Spirit moves us from apathy to action. So why did Jesus need to pray? Jesus needed to pray because Jesus was the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he found perfect delight in the Father. And here lies the great secret of succeeding in spiritual disciplines. Discipline does not yield delight. Rather, delight produces discipline. Jesus wasn't seeking discipline in order to delight in the Father. Rather, he was disciplined because he was delighted in the Father. You don't become that which you pursue. What you are yields the fruits that you will produce. Psalm 40 verse 8, which the author of Hebrews applies to Jesus, says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. A powerful life of spiritual discipline begins in the heart. Obedience for Jesus flowed out of a heart that delighted, enjoyed the Father. We tend often to think of prayer as a thermostat that controls our spiritual vitality. If we are disciplined in our prayer, we will do well. We've accomplished much because we've prayed much. If we're not so disciplined, we'll do poorly. We think God blesses us when we are disciplined in prayer and chastises us when we lack discipline. The problem with this mindset is that it puts us in charge rather than God. This sounds pious, but when we think that God acts towards us according to our righteousness, our discipline, we actually give birth to pride. One time, when I was an undergrad, I had to take the dreadful exam for Music History 1. Now, Music History 1 is the worst class for a music major because it involves reading and writing. And music majors just don't do that. Music History 1 is especially difficult because it deals with ancient music. See, once you get to Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, even Bartok, we can handle that. But what happens in music before Bach? No music major knows that. Once the exam was done, you could see the dreadful faces of all those musicians 
realizing it's going to take a lot more work than they first anticipated to graduate with that degree. But one of my friends, Enrique, he looked very confident. He told me, last night I was studying, but I did not neglect my devotional. I stopped my study, and I prayed, and I read my Bible. And because of that, I am confident I did well. And immediately I thought, oh man, I should have done my devotional last night. That sounds pious. But I would argue that although my friend sounded very spiritual, what he was proposing was a softened version of the prosperity gospel. Did you hear how everything he said began with the pronoun I? I call this a transactional prayer. God, I give you my prayer, you give me my grade. I do this for you, you do that for me. Now, I am not setting aside the importance of prayer. But friends, when we receive something from God, we receive it because of His grace. Virtually none of Christ, the Christian life begins with the pronoun I, except for the sin that we bring within us. Grace never begins with I. It is always He. God gave me grace. It is He who caused me to do well. It is He who accomplished anything that is good within me. True prayer warriors are so aware of their spiritual dependence on God that they never boast on their strength, but rather on their weakness. We pray because we need God. If a prayerful life is a gift of grace from the Lord, then we dare not boast in it. Lest we prove that we have not indeed received grace. Prayer should rather be viewed not as a thermometer, but as a not as, uh, not as a thermostat, but as a thermometer that reveals to us our spiritual condition. Prayer always comes from a place of weakness and dependence on the Lord. None of us is where we ought to be in our prayer lives. So, what should we do then? How can we learn from Christ? What should we do when we realize we don't depend on the Lord enough in prayer? Prayer begets prayer. The answer is within prayer itself. We pray about it. We don't simply present, we, we don't simply, simply present rote repetition before the Lord. But we pray with honesty and openness that the Lord will transform our heart. We pray that the Lord will give us an undivided mind in prayer. We pray, that the Lord, we pray to the Lord because it is the Lord who teaches us to delight in Him. If true prayer flows out of delight and not discipline, the Lord has to work in our heart first. Is there something important about the fact that Jesus pursued the Father early in the morning? 
yes. I know I completely discouraged my fellow night owls in this room, but be encouraged because Jesus also prayed in the afternoon and in the evening. No one can outpray Jesus. But as we start our day, there is nothing more important than to set our minds on the things that are above. Friends, Satan, the world, and the flesh wake up early. We need to beat them. We need God to grab a hold of our thoughts before the world does. Now, as a father of a three-year-old, it's not hard to wake up very early along, I'm sorry, with not the three-year-old, the three-month-old. It is not hard to wake up very early along with your three-month-old because he's very disciplined in waking up early. We're praying for the days that, the dis- that that discipline is going to go away. But let me give you a few advice on how to make morning prayer work. By the way, I live with a morning prayer extraordinaire who puts me to shame in many ways. But, but there is a way to make it work. If your mind is best in the morning, praise the Lord. Prioritize your morning to spend time with the Lord. Embrace the natural discipline of your body, of your mind. But also, check your heart, that you're not merely being disciplined, but that you are delighting in the Lord. How do you know the difference between mere discipline and true delight? If your devotional life is producing pride, you are not delighting in the Lord. If your devotional life is producing humility, it's coming from true delight in the Lord. Now, if you're like me and your mind struggles for the first hour of the day, it's okay to start with coffee. Go make your coffee, okay? Go get your body moving. Don't be legalistic about it. Perhaps planning a prayer journal ahead of time might help you. There is a wonderful devotional book by Charles Spurgeon called Morning and Evening. Grab that book, read that first devotional first, and then go pray. Do the same in the evening. Read a few verses of Scripture before you pray to get your mind going, to get your mind on the things that are above. Spend a larger amount of time with the Lord in the evening, but do dedicate some time to prayer in the morning. Ultimately, for those who are morning people and those who are evening people alike, ask the Lord to give you delight in Him. This is the key, friends. If delight is not there, discipline will not last, and discipline will not produce fruits of righteousness. But if delight is there, righteousness will be there. Well, now let's consider from verses 36 to 39, Jesus' devotion to his calling. Now, we've seen a lot of people confused about who Jesus is so far in Mark. 
and, and the confusion continues. But now it's his own disciples. So far, Peter, Andrew, John, and James are with Jesus. We're going to see the other eight joining pretty soon. Peter, who was clearly the leader among the disciples, sought after Jesus. The language in the original is actually very strong. Peter and the other disciples pursued Jesus. They hunted Jesus down. But why? What was their purpose in pursuing Jesus? Well, because everyone was seeking for Jesus. Jesus' popularity was exploding. The whole region was hearing about him. This is time to seize the moment. Now this ministry is going to grow. The context here tells us that they were not looking for Jesus for the right reasons. They wanted more of the physical healing, of the popularity, and of the delivery they had experienced the night before. They wanted the benefits of Jesus, but they were not interested in the person of Jesus. Which is an important warning for us today. It is possible to seek Jesus for the wrong reasons. As a matter of fact, the word to seek, zeteo, is used ten times in the Gospel of Mark. All of them in relationship to Jesus. Nine out of ten times, the word is used negatively. With the exception of the women seeking for Jesus in the empty tomb, in Mark 16, 6, for Martha to seek Jesus is a bad idea. Mark 1, 37, everyone is seeking for Jesus, our passage, as he spends time with the Father. Mark 3.32, Jesus' family seeks Jesus in disagreement with his ministry. Mark 8.11 through 12, the Pharisees seek a sign in order to test Jesus. Mark 11.18, the Jewish leaders were seeking to seize Jesus. Mark 14.11, Judas seeks to betray Jesus. Mark 14.55, the Jewish leaders seek false witnesses about Jesus. In the Gospels, the emphasis is not that, cr that Christ came to be sought. The emphasis is that Christ came to seek. Those who seek Christ out of a desire to build their own kingdom will not find Him. But did you hear our passage today from Isaiah 55? Seek the Lord while he may be found. There is a right way to seek the Lord. Those who seek after him with genuine hearts, rather those who are sought by him, may have every assurance that they will find there's a whole movement in the church today called the seeker-friendly movement. On the surface, it sounds good. It's a movement that attempts to make church more attractive to the world. Purple lights, fog machines, guitar solos. By the way, all things that you will not find in this church, praise the Lord. Except for the guitar solos. Sometimes the guitar solo is okay, right? But purple lights and fog machines, no. And nearly no reverence in the worship of God. Friends, we shouldn't base our worship 
services on the preferences of unregenerate men. The sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, in an attempt to worship God, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, and they were immediately consumed by fire, killed by the Lord. This is a reminder to us that God cares not only that He's worshipped, but He cares about how He's worshipped. God cares not only that He is sought, but that He cares about how He is sought. Years ago, I was at a church planters conference in Miami, and the question was raised, should we incorporate secular songs in our services so we can attract unbelievers? My answer was a question. Whom are we worshiping? No, friends, we do not shape our services after the preference of unbelievers. Instead, we want unbelievers to witness true worship and desire that and seek the Lord with a right heart, with a desire to approach Him as He demands we approach Him. We shape our services after the preference of God. We are sensitive to one seeker, and that is God. Churches that chase the culture find themselves enamored and enslaved to the culture. Churches that seek to worship Christ in reverent, Scripture-shaped, Scripture-saturated worship, honor God, and actually offer the culture the only hope they actually have to find Christ. Whatever the means you bring them in by are the means that you will keep them in through. Bring them in with God-honoring worship, and you will keep them in through God-honoring worship. Bring them in through worldly devices. They will always ask for more and more. And then we wonder, why is the church today struggling with holiness? Why is the church today struggling with reverence? It is because we have forgotten that God is the one who is seeking worshipers, who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Back in our text, Jesus' response to to Peter is clear. He did not come to please the town. He did not come to do the will of man. Jesus' assurance from the Father was great, so great, that he needed no further affirmation from the crowds. Capernaum was a major city, a wealthy city. I'm sure it was tempting to stay and create a large following. A mega church. But for Jesus, success was not based on the size of the crowd. Very often, on the contrary, Jesus would say things that would discourage the crowds from following him. No, friends, success for Jesus was measured by faithfulness to the mission that the Father sent him to accomplish. At times, Jesus had thousands following him. At times, hundreds. At times, twelve. 
at times three, at the cross, he went alone. The cross, the kingdom of God, is found in one man. No one was faithful to that point. Jesus was not concerned about the crowds because he knew the cost of discipleship would be so great, he would eventually be alone. The word for towns here really indicates that Jesus and his disciples were about to go into small villages, places of no great recognition. This would have been a terrible modern church growth strategy, but it was an incredible world-transforming plan. Jesus was devoted to his calling, and his calling was to preach the gospel. This is why at Central Baptist, we emphasize the preaching of the gospel. Jesus knew that if the world was going to change, it was going to change through a message. The proclamation of the gospel was what the world needed, though the world did not know that. The proclamation of the gospel is what what caused Jesus to leave the halls of heaven and dwell among us. Friends, there's nothing more important than the preaching of the gospel. The gospel that was announced by Jesus and that was accomplished by Jesus. And if you're here today, You're here because God brought you here to hear the gospel. If you're a believer, may the gospel be the encouragement for you to live a disciplined life before the Lord as you delight in the work that Christ accomplished and applied to you. Friend, if you're not a believer among us, no amount of discipline will ever, ever, Bring you to God. No prayer you pray. Not the way you dress. Not the amount of money that you give. Not the amount of time you're able to go without sinning. Nothing that you do will reconcile you to God. The gospel tells us that we are in grave trouble. We have rebelled against the God creator of the universe. Friends, that's the natural human condition. And even though we try, our sins separate us from God. We fall short of the grace of the glory of God day in and day out. Discipline does not amount to salvation but salvation was accomplished by the discipline and the delight of Christ friends salvation is not accomplished by us it is accomplished by Christ the great paradigm is that the more we try to make ourselves right with God the more We've caused ourselves to be further and further from God. The great paradigm of the gospel is that coming to God requires a recognition that we can't come to Him. We don't have in ourselves the power or the desire. When we're dead in our trespasses and our sin, 
that death touches every aspect of our lives. We can't reason ourselves to God. We can't work ourselves to God. We can't, we can't minister ourselves to God. But the good news of the gospel is that God comes. We've sought him in every wrong way, but Jesus, when he seeks, he accomplishes his mission. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes and finds the sinner. And he tells the sinner, your life will never amount to salvation, but you can live vicariously through me. So Jesus, in his perfect obedience, gives us his obedience. Jesus dies in order to pay for our sins. Jesus died in order to take on himself the wrath of the Father that should have been on us. He was buried as an assurance that his death was real and that as we are buried with him, our old nature stays there and we're raised with him to a powerful new life. Jesus enables us to be disciplined, but only if we know him in the power of his resurrection. It is his ascension that caused the spirit to come and indwell in us and transform our hearts. So friends, because of Jesus' discipline, we have both received the discipline of Christ and being enabled to live a disciplined life before the Lord. How do you receive that? How do you receive all these benefits? How do you receive the discipline of Christ in your behalf? How do you receive the spirit that enables you to live a truly disciplined life? By faith. It is faith alone. We're not calling you here to mere church attendance, to mere prayer prayerful life, to mere scripture reading. We're calling you here to trust. We're calling you here to abide, to hold on to Christ and say, you work in me. And as you work in me, I will be transformed. This is the call, the call of the gospel, the call of Christ. The call that teaches undisciplined, rebellious men to find discipline and joy in the law of God. Well, let us consider also Jesus' devotion to sinners, verses 40 through 45. As Jesus proceeds to the towns around the Sea of Galilee, he finds a leper. Leprosy in the Bible would refer to a series of skin diseases. Leprosy was highly contagious. And for a practical matter, lepers were isolated from the rest of the community. Those who suffered leprosy lived a hard life. They lived alone, perhaps accompanied by others with the same condition. They were marked as filthy by the way they, dre they dressed, by the way they wore their hairs, and even by what they announced 
as they approached others. All this by no fault of their own. Leprosy is described in Leviticus 13 and 14, and perhaps no other passage describes a leper's experience better than Leviticus 13, 40, 45 through 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let their hair off his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. By no fault of their own, they find themselves cut off from the covenant community. While all other diseases had to be cured, leprosy had to be cleansed. A leper wasn't separated from the camp for just practical reasons, although it's not less than practical reasons. A leper was separated from the camp for theological reasons. Anyone who would come in contact with a leper would become ceremonially unclean. They would not be able to enter the temple in the presence of God. The law of Moses forbade a leper from approaching another man. But this man saw in Jesus greater hope than the law offered him. The law declares realities, but Jesus creates realities. The law declared this man unclean, but Jesus is able to do that which the law cannot do. Make the unclean clean. If leprosy touches a common man, the common man becomes unclean. But when Jesus touches leprosy, leprosy loses its power. The law has no power to clean, but Jesus has power to clean us from all our diseases. This man shows reverence towards Jesus and tells him, If you will, you can make me clean. There's no doubt in this man's heart. He does not question Jesus' ability. But he wasn't sure about his compassion. But do you see what motivates Jesus? He was moved with pity. Jesus' heart is filled with pity towards the sinful and the broken. Then Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. When we come to Jesus for help, we are doing that which Jesus wants us to do. He is not a God who reproaches us when we tell him everything in prayer. Jesus touches the man and his leprosy is healed immediately. He sends him away and charges him to show himself to the priest as the law commanded. And yet, this man could not contain himself Against Jesus' order, he spreads the good news. There is a man 
who is willing and able to help. His name is Jesus. This drew multitudes to Jesus and hindered him from ministering in those towns. For everyone heard of his power and compassion. Friends, is there anything that is separating you from Jesus today? Do you sense that your sin is beyond forgiven forgiveness? Do you sense that the filthiness of your life is keeping you from being cleansed? Jesus does not wait for the sick to heal himself or the broken to put himself together or the sinner to atone for their own sin. No, Jesus meets us where we are. Jesus does not accept those who believe themselves whole, but Jesus accepts those who have a clear vision of their utter brokenness and helplessness without Him. When our sin is ever before us, when our need is ever before us, when our depravity is ever before us, there is where Jesus meets us. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, listen to this, I will never cast out. Do you know this? Do you know that Jesus never casts out the sinner that comes to him? Are you waiting to be healed from your spiritual leprosy in order to come to Jesus? Or are you hearing the call, come to me as you are and I will make you clean? We may not have physical leprosy, but just like the demands of the law should have separated this man from Jesus, the fact that we have transgressed the law of God separates us from God himself. We find ourselves in the condition of spiritual leprosy. But Jesus extends his hand and touches those who have spiritual leprosy as well. And friends, no one comes to Jesus because of their spiritual fitness. We come to Jesus because of his mercy. Do you need his mercy today? Do you need your sins to be forgiven? Do you need to be made whole? Do you need to be cleansed? Do you hear the voice of Jesus calling you today? Would you pray with me? Father, how utterly distinct we are from Christ in his holiness, Father. He finds perfect delight in you, and yet, Lord, we are so self-absorbed Lord, we're so interested in our own good. Father, we, we confess before you our sinfulness, brokenness, and utter dependence on Christ. Father, help us know that Jesus invites us to come to him as we are. 
And that the gospel is not the message of get yourself put together and come to Christ. But instead, come to Christ and he will put yourself together. Lord, may nothing cause us all to linger. Cause us all to come to Christ in faith, in repentance, in trust. And help us, Lord, find discipline and delight in him and through him. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.